So last Sunday night about 11 o'clock, I was engaging in some sport that millions of Americans were engaging in, which is making fun of LeBron James. Uh, some of you might know about a year ago, LeBron James, who's an amazingly gifted basketball player, had a decision before him, an important decision in the context of sports, which was he was going to become a free agent, and he had to decide, would he stay in Cleveland? Now, I am not a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball fan, but Cleveland as a city has suffered greatly. I mean, it's certainly true economically, and there's not any other major American city whose sports culture has been as crestfallen over and over and over again as Cleveland. So I really rooted for LeBron James, not to go to my team, which is the New York Knicks, but to stay in Cleveland and maybe being a part of the group that eventually would bring a championship, a long sought after championship to the city of Cleveland. And this process of him becoming a free agent, making his decision, dragged on and on and on and was completely overblown. And finally, he had a whole hour on ESPN in prime time and it was called The Decision. And at first you thought you might know The Decision in the first quarter hour and then the second quarter hour and then the third quarter hour and then just dragged it out and dragged it out and dragged it out. And I knew some people in Cleveland and they were just hoping against hope, please let him stay here at home. He's an Akron, Ohio native. Let him stay here. And then at the end of the hour, after dragging out forever, upping those ad revenues, he said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. And he became a member of the Miami Heat. And when he was introduced with his fellow players in the Miami Heat, they, there was a lot of like braggadocio. They said, no, we're not going to have one. We're not going to have two. We're not going to have three or four or five championships. They had spread out an entire decade of championships to come. And so when the Miami Heat lost last Sunday night to the Dallas Mavericks, I was just relishing it a little bit, feeling good for all my Cleveland, long-suffering Cleveland fans. And so I put this up on my Facebook page, wanting to just be a part of the techno stream. LeBron's talents may still be in South Beach, but the NBA's trophy is headed to Dallas. There's one person up there, I know you can't see it, who is from Akron, and felt a nice little sense of justification and feeling all right. About five minutes after I posted this little thought, I got a call from a friend of mine, a very dear friend, a friend who had been with me through one of the most despairing and necessary times in my life and had helped to share a light with me that helped me start to find my way out. And he told me in words I didn't quite understand right away that his 37-year-old wife was clinging to life in a hospital in Lansdale and that he was afraid he was going to lose her. And he called me back 15 minutes later and said these words, she's gone. And I was out the door and up to see him with a couple other friends in that hospital room. And so I posted this Four and a half hours later, at 3.28 in the morning, after I'd returned from the hospital, after spending three and a half hours with him, the end of an unexpected and very sad evening, just returned from the hospital where a friend's wife died. She was only in her 30s, praying that he will be held in love and in support. In the space between these two Facebook posts of my life, seemingly so 
different, so radically different when juxtaposed with each other is the space between a fun story, a diverting story, a small story, and the space between the real story. The story that can happen to us at any time, that can come out of the blue, that we know in times of great suffering and also in times of great joy. That's what today's Spirit Flicks movie is about. That's what the movie Super 8 is really all about. Now, there's one lesson, one real lesson that I take away from this movie that actually has not so much to do with what I want to talk about today, but I really realized at the end of this movie, there is only one Steven Spielberg. Now, he's a producer on this movie, and this really seemed like a Steven Spielberg movie. But there were several moments at the end of the movie where I was thinking to myself, J.J. Abrams, the movie maker, he really wants me to be crying right now, not thinking about crying. Steven Spielberg would have had me bawling at some of these scenes. Steven Spielberg is a modern master. And this is very much a Spielberg-like movie. It basically is just E.T., and sorry to give away the secret, but it's not much of a secret anymore, with a scarier but still very sympathetic monster who just wants to go home. Throw in an extra dash of a coming-of-age tale like Stand By Me, and that is Super 8. Now, it's a little bit more hip than E.T. because it's set after the 1970s. Although it's set in the 1970s, excuse me, it's made after the 1970s, although it's set in 1979. There's a lot of uh, references to the music of the time, like the Knacks, My Sharona. Remember that? If you remember that? Well, maybe read the lyrics of that song if you want to. It's completely filthy. It's about this group of 14-year-old boys in the movie, and they really like the lyrics. But there's also some other references in here to, like, our generation, my generation's first iPod. Remember the Walkman? That big honking thing we used to carry around and put our cassette tapes in. So there's these fun little pop culture references to the 1979 and that time and that place. Now the kids in the movie, this gaggle of 14-year-old kids, they set out to make their own movie. That's what Super 8 is all about, the 8mm film that they use. And it's really a movie within a movie. They set out to make, at first, a zombie movie. And one of the best things about Super 8 is that if you stay all the way through the end, all the way till the credits, you will see their five-minute zombie movie from start to finish, and it's wonderful. It's got the ketchup and caro syrup for the fake blood and really bad acting, and it's absolutely wonderful. But the thing is, in the movie, is that when they're filming one of these scenes, and there's this driven young 14-year-old filmmaker who is like a budding auteur, and he wants atmosphere, he wants a background, so he takes them down one night by the rail yard where the cars and the trains come by, and he wants to shoot there. And what they end up shooting opens up a whole new world, a train accident, which really isn't an accident at all, and it opens them up to aliens and government conspiracies in a world much bigger than just their own. The thing is, both of the movies are about death. The silly zombie movie and the larger movie itself. One of the main characters, the main character, one of the 14-year-old boys, has just lost his mother three, four, five months before. And what he comes to discover in this process of dealing with this alien mystery is that he has to travel his own path of grieving. Now, in this movie, and I thought this was way overdone, the end of the movie actually goes through a graveyard if we didn't get the symbolism to begin with. This is where the monster, the alien, is hiding out. 
And at one point, this young 14-year-old boy, Joe, says to the monster, and this doesn't quite work, but I like the sentiment, you can live after this. You can go home. One of my mentors of ministry, Reverend Dr. Forrest Church, said in his last book, the book that he was writing while he was dying, called Love and Death, he said, all good stories have death in them. This story has death in it. The silly story and the larger story. One is a story that the kids want to tell, and the other is a story of what truly happens to them. Now, the movie-making kid, the kid who wants to be the aspiring director, at one point he says, I don't care what I captured on the Super 8 camera. I don't care. I want to make my movie. I want to make my zombie movie. The whole movie, however, is about them letting go of their silly movie and getting to that place where they recognize what has really captured them, this larger mystery. The movie is all about the difference between the story we might like to tell about our life and sometimes the really big stories that come along and interrupt who we are in the midst of our lives. The love and death and life and courage and heartfulness and mindfulness stories that if we listen to us really wake them up. And so the test of the movie is this. What it asks us from a spiritual perspective, what happens when life intercedes? What happens when life interrupts the stories we want to tell about ourselves and we are given an entirely new story to tell? What happens when we are forced out of our small stories and into a larger story? That's what happened to me in a small way on Sunday night. Now, it's not like I wanted to stay at home after my friend called me and said, but I was just about to tweet about LeBron James. I want to say in my small story here, I want to be snarky. I want to have something sarcastic to say. Literally, I was pulling off my pajamas and getting into my clothes the minutes after he called me. And so I found myself for three and a half hours in that hospital room just off of that ER And they were really good ER workers, the nurses and the doctors there, because I kind of knocked at the entryway window. And I said, my friend, and I described who he was, his wife just died, and they got this very somber look on their faces. They said, let me show you where he is. And I walked into that room where he and his wife was, and she was still intubated. You could still see the... EKG that they had taken of her heart while they were trying to revive her. You could see that tape coming out of the machine like an old stock ticker. And I saw my friend with his arm around his wife's body whispering in her ear. I love you. I'm sorry. I wish I could have done something. And then he pulled back for a second, and obviously he was crying. And then he went over and he rustled through her purse, and he he himself has a Blackberry, and she has a droid. And he didn't know how to operate the droid, so he spent about 10 minutes going through the droid because he really wanted to show the pictures that they had just taken over Memorial Day weekend. And right next to all that sadness and all that sorrow, he's telling the, the pictures, the story of each of those pictures as we scrolled through. And he went back all the way to their wedding. They'd been married less than a year. And the 
It's just beautiful, awful, amazing grief. The sorrow and the sadness and the joy. And oh my God, this is my life right now, he seemed to be saying. At one point, he walked out of the room to consult with one of the doctors who had tried to save her. She was an organ donor. And she had had a disease that unfortunately rendered many of her organs not fit for use for another person. But she still could give her corneas. And so my friend walked out to make sure that they would go to good use. And I took that time when I was alone with his wife and his wife's body to take her hand. I don't know whether you've ever taken the hand of someone who has just died. It's, it's not warm like my hand is. But it's still very powerful. And I just offered a prayer. I said, you know, you're going to that place that none of us who are still alive know. Not yet, not really. I said, thank you. Thank you for making my friend happy. He waited a long time to meet you. And you didn't have as much time as you would have wanted. But you made him really happy. And I cannot thank you enough for that gift. I was trying to pray the real story. The love and death story. The story that I hope that all of us, when we are tapped on the shoulder by life, can say, yes, we do leave enough room in our small stories for when that larger story interrupts, the bigger story. Now, nothing is wrong with our small stories that we tell. Nothing is wrong with us getting on Facebook and making a little bit of fun of LeBron James. But still, we have to leave space in those smaller stories so that we're not, as a book once said, amusing ourselves to death. Amusing ourselves to a kind of indifference or not paying attention to the real story in life. Amusing ourselves to the point where we don't recognize how life and death and love and courage are all here in this moment. And actually, I have to give LeBron James credit. Because I don't know whether he meant it this way, but at the press conference, I saw hours, hours. I couldn't get to sleep when I got back home at 3.30. I was up until 5 or 5.30 in the morning, so I figured I'm going to watch a little bit of Sports Center. And one of the things that he said in his press conference, he says, we're all going to wake up tomorrow. We're going to have to move on with our lives. And some people took that to mean, I'm going to go back to my mansion. You're going to go back to your cruddy lives and ha-ha. But I think, no. I think what he was saying is that, you know what? This is just a small piece. Now, however much he was responsible for blowing it up into a big piece, that's his fault. But also, he was saying, this is really just a small thing. Don't mistake this small piece for the larger piece. Move on and get on with your lives. If the story that we tell about our lives is limited and limiting, we will not pay attention to the big story, the true deep story of our lives when it comes around and wants to wake us up. Sometimes people call this cognitive closure. There's a magazine called Christianity Today, which is an evangelical magazine, which I disagree with almost entirely, but I respect and I read regularly because I want to understand that worldview. And they had a piece, an editorial this past week that was titled this, No Adam, No Eve, No Gospel. 
Because what they were reflecting on was this new piece of genetic research that they referenced that said that human beings, to the extent when we first emerged as human beings, I mean, they even did nod to the idea that there may have been evolution. I give them credit for that, just a little bit, I guess. But they said the idea is that we didn't first emerge as a single pair, two of us. That the genetic research says there probably would have been something like 10,000 of us right there in the beginning and what's lost to us and we cannot find and only can think about. But they said we have to draw the line. There must be an original pair of humans who disobeyed for the whole story of the gospel to make sense. Now I know a lot of my fellow uh, friends, clergy, progressive Christians who say it's just a story, Adam and Eve. It doesn't have to be believed literally to understand what they associate with the gospel story. Love and reconciliation and justice and everyone being welcomed to the table. One of our pieces of DNA, the only piece of our values and beliefs that explicitly refers to a part of Jewish and Christian scripture is this. The burning bush is blazing everywhere. This is our way of making sense of a traditional Unitarian Universalist teaching, which is that revelation is unsealed. It's not bound up in some book long ago or far away. Revelation is right here, right now, unsealed. And I'd say it's even deeper than that. I would say revelation is signed, sealed, and delivered into our hands and from our hearts every day if we are awake to it. If we will grab the hands closest to us, alive or dead... And recognize that life is right here and right now. Sometimes those small stories get in the way. And they can sometimes make us really cruel or indifferent. I heard a story not too long ago about a big mega church in North Carolina that had a gigantic Easter celebration. I mean, they had it in a stadium. It was so big. And at one point during the service, there was a long prayer and people responded, amen. And there was a small child in that service who was in a wheelchair because he had cerebral palsy. And he responded, amen, in his particular way of saying the word amen. And the words had barely left his mouth. And an usher from this established big church was on them, wanting to relocate them to another place, not in the middle of other people who the way that he talked could somehow disturb. Now, it's easy sometimes to cast a stone at other people in the ways that their small stories get in front of or hide the big story. But I do think about a family that came here to Wellsprings. I don't know their names. A couple months ago, they had with them a son one of the kids in their family, a child who was quite clear was very severely autistic. And during the service, at various times, he made sort of small yells or noises, his way of processing the overwhelming sense of information that he was trying to deal with and sort out. Now that family stayed after the service, and I do believe they felt welcomed. But I still have to ask myself, did they feel really welcomed, or did they feel to a reminder of us here that somehow they weren't normal? See, that's the small story. The small story is about our comfort. The small story is about establishing norms that make us normal, and some people will, maybe not normal. 
The big story is about deep hospitality. About welcoming people as they are and recognizing that sometimes in life we need to look beyond and behind and past the small likenesses, the superficial likenesses, and into that place of those deep likenesses. Sometimes the spiritual story we tell is only a small story if it only serves to help us in our desire to be comfortable. This is why I like John Spong, the past retired bishop, Episcopal bishop of Newark, New Jersey, who says that his entire two hours of spiritual practice in the morning is preparation. Preparation to show up in the midst of his life and to see the real story in the lives of other people. It's not time on the meditation cushion or the yoga mat that is real. It is what that prepares us for as we go out into our lives. There's a meditation teacher, a woman named Susan Peaver. And she wrote uh, a thing on Huffington Post, the progressive news site, that I saw published or republished or shared over and over again on Facebook. And in it, she did something very simple and very necessary. She praised the value of sadness. She says, when we look out at this world and really see this world, what we will see will oftentimes make us very, very sad. And she says, this is good. Because in those moments, we are seeing clearly. Genuine sadness gives rise spontaneously, naturally, completely to the wish, not just the wish, the longing to be of benefit to others. When your wish to help is rooted in love, which is to say sadness, it is effective. There is no question. But because we can be so uncomfortable in our sadness, we immediately want to turn sadness in what we imagine will hurt less anger hopelessness helplessness she says no pay attention to that sadness I could see it on so many of your faces when I was telling that story of being with my friend and his wife because you have those stories that are already yours, that remind you of your beloved departed, or those people that were taken from you too quickly, that still it hurts and makes you sad to think of. What this great teacher says to us, don't remove ourselves from the sadness, because that brings us back to the great story. The big story, the story of our hearts, the story of also what connects us with great joy and great beauty and great longing and great love. For my friend's wife's memorial mass this past week, we, these were the words in the service that made the most sense to me. They wrote, remember who you love. Remember what is sacred. Remember what is true. And then words that hit me right here. Remember that you will die and that this day is a gift. Remember that we will die and that this day is a gift. Remember how you wish to live 
and the blessings of a God of love. I would say that any story, any story that drops us right back down into the heart of our lives is a story that we should listen to. It is a story that our ancestors who lived long before any of these long before would recognize. And it is a story that the people who come after us, when they look back at our technologies, just like we look at the Walkmans and say, my God, that stuff is silly and quaint. They will recognize that story as their story as well, too. That's the big story. The stories that make us laugh and cry. The stories of awe and pain and sorrow and gratitude. The stories that make us realize that life is right here unmediated. Spiritually speaking, I think the only stories worth telling are the stories that bring us back to life. The stories that go in one form or another. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Hand to hand. Eye to eye, smile to smile, tear to tear, love to love, and heart to heart. Today, leave enough space in whatever your small stories are to remind you the big story, the real story is always our story if we pay attention. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A simple prayer this day. In God of our heart's deepest yearning. For our longings and our loves, our sorrow and sadness and joy, For all that wakes us up in this life. May we not be indifferent to the sighs and the longings and the tears and the laughter and the joy and the amazing noises of our fellow brothers and sisters. May we live the kind of life worthy of being woken up so that when the big story comes around to us as individuals, as it will come eventually to us all, we are able to say, yes, I am here. I can respond. I am awake. We are awake. And amen that we are. May it be so.